of Sharing the Magic, a show dedicated to all things Disney. Join us as we explore the magical world with some special guests. Whether you're a diehard fan or a casual visitor, this podcast is for anyone who can use a little extra pixie dust. And once again, I am your host, your ghost host, Barry. Our guest tonight is a former Imagineer, and he has had his hands in numerous projects all around Disney. But for this guy, this is just scratching the surface. We will get to meet him shortly, but let's first say hello to our co-host. First up, we have the goofy dupe himself. Jeff, Jeff, how are we doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing good. I, uh, I, uh, been hard at work this week doing voice acting stuff. Uh, what episode are we on, Barry? Do you know? We were on 13. 13, so we might have some listeners that are either sick of me <laughs> and my goofy voices or 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 have never heard them before but oh gosh well never again you're this you're you're nice. always yearning for learning well i'm yearning for some learning <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> oh. all right next up we have everyone's favorite disney dad matt matt how you doing I am doing okay, Barry. I, uh, I'm in the throes of the Disney blues, as they are known. We just returned from our awesome 18-night Disney vacation uh, about two days ago. So we are, you know, feeling that we're no longer in the magic. But being here tonight talking with you guys, I'm super excited to speak with our guest, get some of that magic back. And uh, I'm just really looking forward to the show. Fantastic. All right, as I mentioned Earlier, our guest has had a profound impact on the creative side of Disney. He has worked on designs and concept teams that have created attractions like the Tower of Terror and the Wonders of Life, to resorts like the Boardwalk and Pleasure Island. Now, our guest is an author of the of the book called Hatch, Brainstorming Secrets of a Theme Park Designer, and he's also a speaking coach. We're happy to have. McNair Wilson joining us tonight. Welcome, McNair. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Good to All be right. with you. Wonderful to have you. Well, McNair, let's jump right yeah. in. What? Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us how you became a Disney Imagineer? Well, it, it, it all started, it germinated uh, w when I was um, just a few days shy of my 14th birthday, we lived in Pasadena, California, and uh, went to the Rose Parade every year. And my dad was a Naval Reserve guy who was who put in one weekend a month at a civil defense station that the Navy ran there in an old elementary school. And because they were literally at the terminus, the very end of the Rose Parade, some years ago, before my dad had come on board, they um, asked and were granted permission to put together a, a buffet lunch for the key people in the parade, the, the Rose Queen, the princesses, the, um, the, the mayor, um, Grand Marshal, the parade, who was always 
a celebrity or some international dignitary. And they always announce the theme of the parade for the following year in February. So a month after the parade is, is over, the dust is barely cleared. And, and in February of 1965, they announced that Walt Disney would be the Rose, uh, Rose Parade Grand Marshal. Well, everybody in Pasadena's head exploded. And um, my dad, because he was the principal of a private school in the area, had good relations with all sorts of community people. And it fell to him to be a community relations officer, among other things, there at the base. And so he was tasked with contacting the studio and and um, seeing if Mr. Disney had any particular uh, dietary proclivities and something that is pro forma these days as a speaker. Every place they go, they ask you that. They send out a form, you know. And and uh, his secretary, Walt's secretary, said he'd never been asked that. Imagine that. But that was, you know, the mid-60s and things things weren't as uh, facile as they are now. And then I said, I said, did you talk to his? No, he said, I talked to his secretary. I said, well, are we going to get to meet him? He says, well, I don't know. Let me check. Called back, told her that among the officers at the uh, base, uh, there's probably a dozen children, would love to meet Walt. He said, it wouldn't be five minutes of his time and autograph. She, she checked with Walt and said, that'd be fine. So the parade at, or the parade comes, and it's there. they are at the beginning of the parade. Walt gets out, goes to the men's room. And this is again in an, in an old elementary school. So he said, I need to sit down. So we go into one of the classrooms that was not being used. They, they weren't classrooms anymore, but they had tables and chairs. And they had those old school chairs with the metal feet on them. And he said, I need to sit down. So I ran the other side of the room, got one of the chairs, came running across the linoleum floor, which of course had been polished and waxed and waxed and polished by the US Navy. So it was slippery. And at one point my tennis mm-hmm. shoe caught on the floor. Oh, no. The chair flew out of my hand. <laughs> lit across the room, hit Walt Disney in the shin. <laughs> and and I knew for a certainty that sometime in the next few moments, I would be thrown into the fiery lake of hell for <laughs> injuring or maybe killing Walt Disney. Oh, no. He grabbed the chair and gave a little, oh, and I went, and <laughs> I turned in the corner right there, so I just stood in the corner. And not five minutes later, everybody had gotten Walt's autograph. Remember, this is 19... 19- 66 January 1st and um, so we didn't have cell phones with cameras kids didn't carry cameras you know and so they just got signature and moved on and I heard this voice hey what are you doing over there and I turned around and it was me and Walt alone in the room um, a, a bit dizzy a bit dizzying shall we say yeah. now my birthday is the fourth day of the year write it down it's the same day every year i do it that way so people can remember <laughs> so this is three days before my 14th birthday and i'm saying oh geez mr disney i'm so sorry i'm so sorry it slipped out of my hands i'm sorry i'm so and he said wait what i'm fine i'm fine and he put his leg up on the chair and pulled up his pant leg i can see it guys as if it happened five minutes ago to show me two things so look no bruising I'm fine. And look at here, my socks. Ah. I've got uh, got suspenders on my socks. Well, he's wearing knee socks with garters. <laughs> um, and this is probably 11 o'clock in the morning. He's probably been up since four. One of the things that my dad did was find out from Walt what kind of coffee he likes. Does he like anything in it? And he says, uh, uh, no, he drinks it black, but we found out later he brought a little flask of his own additive. <laughs> and um, Walt, Walt was a well-known imbiber. Yeah. And um, 
And so, uh, and, and he pulled up the other leg. You see, he says, see, Gar- they're called girders. Imagine that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I didn't just meet Walt Disney. I met his socks, his suspenders, his airy legs. <laughs> and, he, and, and so we sat down. He said, what do you got there? So I said, it's my sketchbook, sir. He said, do you care, have it with you all the time? I said, pretty much every day. And um, I said, can I look? And he started coming through and he saw a train. He said, you like trains? He said, I said, oh, yes, sir. He said, do you like my train? I said, I like all your trains. He said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, at Disneyland, you have at least three trains. He said, I do. And I said, how does Walt Disney not know? I said, you got the Rainbow Caverns Mine train. You got the um, Casey Jr.'s train that goes through Storybook Land. And then you've got the Disneyland Railroad that goes around the park. He says, I do have three trains. How about that? And I said, I like them all. And I said, but I like drawing the towns and stuff. He said, so what do you want to do with the, with all this? You want to be an architect or something? I said, well, a couple years ago on TV, you had a man showing the new pirate ride that's coming up. And you said his name was Claude. And he was the head, imagine, imagine and Walter, Imagineer. I said, exactly. And, and, and you said he was the head Imagineer on this new ride building. I said, I'd like to work with him. Oh, he says, wow. you want to be an Imagineer? He said, that's my guys. And he poked me in the shoulder. And he says, well, I think you shall. So he said, so you shall be, and poked me in the shoulder. And when I told that story years later on my first week at Imagineering as a consultant, Marty Scalar, who was hired by Walt a month before Disneyland opened to create the Disneyland Main Street Gazette, the newspaper. He had been the editor-in-chief of the Daily Bruin at UCLA. And they had a lot of guys from the football team. And they said, you guys know anybody on the on the newspaper and they put, they brought Marty over and uh, Marty says, you know, that's not exactly the way Walt would talk to a 13, 14 year old kid. Tell him he will be. He said, well, if Walt poked you and said, you will be, he said, now I've got to hire you someday. <laughs> well, fast. And I didn't, I didn't really follow up on that. You know, he said, he talked about having a train in his backyard. And uh, I said, boy, I'd love to see that. He said, well, you should come over sometime. And I, I thought, Oh yeah, I'll be right there. And so, Fast forward, I was doing street theater. My friends and I had started an audience participation street theater company for the Renaissance Festival in Minnesota. And after just the first weekend, they invited us when that festival closed to be at their festival in in Kansas City. That led to doing 30 plus Renaissance festivals a year all over the country with a troupe of actors. And it was audience participation. So we would do Romeo and Juliet in 25 or 30 or 40 minutes with dividing the audience into Capulets and Montagues and pulling two senior citizens, a male out of the Montagues, a female out of the Capulets, make them Romeo and Juliet, and before the show was over, they would have kissed on the mouth and died on the grass. And uh, we would get, we never performed on stage, or rarely performed on stages. We might do one big show a day, but mostly out in the open air because we were a traveling troupe and we had a cart and so on. And the costumes that we put on the guests were just remnants, just bits and pieces because that's what traveling troops would do. Well, we've been doing that for six years when one of the major show directors from Disney saw us near St. Petersburg in Largo, a little town, the Largo Renaissance Festival. And they were there for something completely different, but really liked us. Went back, told their boss, Peter Blaustein, who was uh, vice president of entertainment for Disney World, and he was putting together all the entertainment for Epcot. Now, this was May of 82. Epcot was 
slated to open in October of 82. And he walked in the front gate and there we were. And we were not scheduled to do a show that day at that time at that spot. But one of the major shows was down, missing some cast members. So they came to us knowing we could do a show anywhere. And they said, do a show right over by the front gate. So as people are coming in for the big chess game, they'll see you. And Peter came in, sat down front and center, laughed his butt off, loved the show, uh, came up later, handed us his golden boss card and said, we need to work together. He said, I think we've been looking for you guys. He said, well, we know you're looking for a street theater troupe. Uh, That was Saturday, Monday morning. That was the last weekend of the festival. Monday morning, we were in his office. And they pulled out a file of all the other little street theater troops they'd seen in and around, most of them college groups. Every single one of them had said, thanks for the opportunity. We know we're not the quality you guys are looking for, but you should really talk to SAC Theater out of Minnesota. They're the ones that inspired our style of, of, of theater. And we spelled our company name S-A-K, just so it was our own word. <laughs> and Peter pulled out the blueprints of this big, enormous, fancy, four-wheeled high with banners and so on, Comedia dell'arte cartridge that they were going to build an imaginary design build for Italy. And we said, boy, you guys really know how to overdo it, don't you? And uh, I said, we'll just use one of our little carts. And uh, I said, you know what? I said, you know what we do. We know what you want. Let's pretend we're going to work together come October. What does that look like? Hmm. And Peter says, well, that cuts about two hours of BS out of my day. And he didn't say BS. Um, <laughs> Probably not. And, uh, yeah, he knew the full the, uh, Old Testament <laughs> version. Yeah, we, we, we can connect <laughs> and, those dots. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, could you come down in a month? He says, how many people does it take to do on a show? I said, three or so. I said, well, why don't you bring four of your people down, and we'll do a handful of shows over at the shopping village. Completely the wrong place for people dressed in Renaissance costumes to do, you know, Romeo and Juliet and some of our other shows. But we did. We had a one-page letter of agreement that we would come on staff at Epcot, do 10 shows a day in Italy at Epcot for uh, October, November, December, just to get the thing going. And Peter knew that that some of the attractions were going to be big and expensive and complicated, and they'd be up and down and working and not working. So he overloaded all of Epcot with more show than you, more live show than you might have. There's, Opening day, we had 350 live shows a week, bands wow. and mimes and jazz accordions and so on. You'd have an area band, you know, the, the future world brass right. would do six or eight sets a day, six, five days a week. And then you'd have another band over here, another band over here. And you had a lot of international acts, which was fun. Right. Um, <clears throat> so all the countries had live shows. They had a a World Showcase puppeteering troupe that I ended up directing because it wasn't working very well, and I have a background in professional puppetry. Anyway, they uh, within a week of Epcot opening, you know, our popularity was off the chain. We would have four, five, six, eight hundred guests standing in the central quad area of Italy watching our shows. Well, the weekend before Epcot opened, we opened the Friday, October 1st, 82. The weekend before that, they did four nights, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, of cast member previews. And cast members were coming up to us just 
first of all, just delighted at what they'd seen, but also amazed because we were sarcastic. We were touching guests unsolicited, pulling them out of the audience, putting hats on the, putting pieces of costumes on them. And you don't do that, you know, when you're playing one of the zoo, zoo crew characters, one of the classic Disney characters, you don't touch a child until the child touches you. And that makes all the sense in the world. Um, but we were, we'd been doing otherwise at Renaissance festivals. And so Disney said, you have other people that can do this other than the 11 of you that came here for these three months. And we said, we have over 60 people on our roster because we sometimes do four Renaissance festivals simultaneously around the country. And we continue to do that. Well, they said, how quickly can you get another troop here? So that was October 2nd, October 10th. By Thanksgiving week, we had a second troop in the United Kingdom, went from 10 shows a day in Italy to 12 shows a day in both Italy and the United Kingdom. And then one day in 84, I think it was, two gentlemen from Walt Disney Imagineering showed up. And so they had asked to meet with whoever it was that was in charge of Sac Theater because they found out we were not a Disney group. We were a separate outside group. And uh, they said, you know, we'd like your help on something. We've realized that um, Future World is a little boring. I said, did you figure that out on your own or did you talk to some guests? And so they asked us to come up with some concepts for some street theater in Future World. So by the summer of 1984, we had three different concepts in Future World as well as Italy and United Kingdom. And we were producing 85 shows a day at Epcot. And uh, that went on for almost seven years. And we did 41,000 street theater shows. Oh my goodness. That just blew Matt's mind. I can, I'm seeing him right now. And, and he's yeah, so shaking his we hands. were We were just in, we, we go to, to Disney World uh, a few times a year. And we, we just came back. And we love Epcot. Epcot's one of our favorite parks to go to. Uh, surprisingly to some people, my six-year-old son, his favorite park is Epcot. He loves to go to Epcot. And um, Great. we had noticed over, you know, the, the past, I mean, my wife and I have been going for, I think, 12, 13 years. Uh, it seems like the live street shows uh, have been diminishing in Epcot. So to hear you say you guys were doing 85 shows a day at one point in, in Epcot and in what 350 shows a week. And while we were there, we saw... Sergio the juggler in Italy. We saw um I'm tingling. What was that? I'm tingling at the thought of the juggler. The juggler, yeah. <laughs> and he was great. It was great to see him because for a few years there, you know, with COVID, all of that kind of went away. So we were glad to see some of these performers come back. We saw the uh the drummers in Japan, which always is a great show to see. Uh we happened by the mariachi band in Mexico. But really, you know, those two groups, groups, the 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 Kobe drummers and the 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 Cobra Mariachi have both been there since opening day. Wow. Uh, One of the guys in the Mariachi group, his son now plays in the band. And when Epcot opened, he wasn't even married. And in the in the Japanese drummer, the husband and wife there have two grown daughters who are in the 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 show now who were five when Epcot opened. Right. Wow. Those so are those are two of the perennials that have escaped the extinction machine that the guys who run the parks who hate live shows because you can't control them. 
You know, if it's five guys with a saxophone, they can stand within a 10 foot by 10 foot radius and stand in, you know, in, 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 in front of the movie theater on Main Street USA, you know, right. do 20 minutes and then go away, then it's okay. But uh, it, anything that's, that's a little loose and uh, improvisational, that doesn't work. Okay. Um, uh, for, fortunately, uh, SAC Theater had a huge fan and friend in Marty, Marty Scalar, most of Imagineering. I say most of because I didn't talk to everybody at Imagineering. But everybody who ever talked to me about SAC Theater just loved it. They said, we're so lucky to find you guys. Yeah. But Michael Eisner especially loved SAC Theater. And so as we were designing the, what became the Disney MGM Studios, he said, we're going to have some street theater this year. I said, I'm working. I'm trying to figure it out what, what, how we could do that. And uh, I was in, in the original meeting where Michael said, you know, I'm going to nuke some of the, um, the entire back lot and some uh, at, in Burbank and, and build offices and maybe a few more sound stages. So design and build me a little working studio in Florida. That's all I asked for was a little working studio. And Bob Weiss, who headed that project, said, our favorite thing to do at Imagineering is answer the unasked question. So we designed a working studio with a theme, uh, uh, movie, film, and television theme park next, next to it. And we designed it such that the studio was open and functioning a year before the park opened to guests. So I still have the sketch out of a little sketchbook, a uh, little kind of a eight by 10 sketch ring sketchbook where we were designing Main Street that became Hollywood Boulevard. And the metaphor was to do Hollywood Boulevard and our castle, the obvious to us was the Chinese theater. One of our architects, we did some research and found the original 1927 blueprints in pretty sad shape. So they redrew line for line all those blueprints such that years after our park opened and and um, Mr. Mann of the Mann Theaters wanted to do a major um, a refurbishment of Chinese theater in Hollywood, they borrowed our blueprints to, to do it with. Wow. wow. But um, Michael kept saying, you know, street theater, street theater, street theater. He says, it just engages the guests and everybody loves it and so on. And, and he would literally plan his his meals with big sponsors and big you know corporate people to coincide with our street theater shows in italy and go to alfredo's of rome and, and and he kept calling and i said michael repeat after me every hour on the half hour every hour and they said what does that mean i said that's when we do shows every hour on the half hour 12 shows a day starting at 10 30 in the morning 11 30 12 30 so on so on so on oh what about uk every hour on the hour so Okay, okay. Well, as we're, as we're designing Hollywood Boulevard, you know, fixed the goal of having every building a replica of some iconic building in Hollywood, whether it was on Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset, Coenga, one of those streets, and there's so many of them, uh, including the store that looks like a camera and so on. <clears throat> wow. Somebody suggested, they said, you know, every city of any size at some point has a holdout, a guy in a house who won't sell his house that's there amongst all the others. So one of our architects was a kind of a, a specialist in California um, craftsman style architecture, drew up plans for a little one-story craftsman house that would just be sitting over there on the left as you, as you entered the gates and it would be a place. And we did some brainstorming and came up with the idea 
of making it a, a store, the guy who lived there had turned into buying movie props. His name was Sid Coenga. Well, Coenga is one of the main streets in, in Hollywood, Coenga Boulevard. So that became Sid Coenga's one-of-a-kind shop. The sign is still in the building, even though they turned the, turned the space into an empty building, which is sad. So many things it could be. It's actually kind of a, oh, I don't know if you could even call it an office, but it's the headquarters for the, for the uh, flags, the tour guides. <laughs> anyway, I thought, if it's called Sid Coenga's, there's better be a Sid Coenga. And I know an actor in Minneapolis that I met at Bethel College when I was there in the uh, probably the late 70s, who was one of these guys who always played the dad or the senior because he, he just looked older than he was by 20 years. Yeah. I said he'd be great standing in a Hawaiian shirt with a different hat every day that he got from the studio. Come on inside. We've got a lot of fascinating stuff. You know, and as a writer and, and a speaker, I always tell speakers, do not use the word things and stuff. There are three things I want to talk to you about today. Well, could you be possibly more imprecise <laughs> than that? That's true. It's true. What are the things? Are they principles? Are they values? Are they, you know? Anyway, so I thought, if there's a Sid Coenda, who else is on Hollywood Boulevard? And suddenly I realized it wasn't street theater. It was street atmosphere theater. It was street atmosphere. Invented the words, invented the, the, the program, and they would use the crosswalks and the sidewalks. They wouldn't stand in the they wouldn't do shows. They would just interact with the guests and with each other. That's awesome. I always say, you know, would you say it was street acting? Because I always think, you know, I'm I'm in the world of voice acting. And, you know, there's a big difference between what I think is voice acting and voice acting. The emphasis is on the acting. Bill Farmer has said this many times, you know, and and, and when it comes to you know, public in, 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 in the public, you know, do, do you think that's accurate when it comes to the shows that, that were performed and, and, you know, did you feel as if, you know, th at, at some point the emphasis should be on authenticity or just being genuine in the deliverance of, you know, and that's why I called it street atmosphere because yes, it was related yes. to streets in the outdoors and we were taking the show to the audience, our guests. Absolutely. But it was atmosphere in that it was tied to the buildings. Disney's always done a wonderful job. If you look at either of the two making of Disney MGM Studios, I'm interviewed in both. And I said, you know, we've done a, 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 always done a wonderful job of placemaking, but, you know, the lights are on in nobody's home. Our parks are kind of like um, a Kincaid painting. Apparently, he didn't know how to draw people. Yeah. Yeah. He could draw forests and cabins, but, but no people. So I, I went over to Universal for two or three days and watched their quote-unquote atmosphere characters. And it was a, a little band of lookalikes, Desi and Lucy, Charlie Chaplin, W.C. Fields, etc. <laughs> well, here's what would happen. People would walk by and see them standing by a building, and they'd think, oh, look, there's two actors dressed up pretending to be Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Yeah. And, and one of the things we know about those two people is they're dead. Yeah. So these are actors pretending. So people yeah. kind of smile and wave and move on. 90 yeah. yes, smile and wave and move on. If they would bother to talk to those actors, which I did, they were all steeped in the history and mannerisms of those. And they were very good at impersonating them, but nobody yeah. cared. So the second level of experience was to go over and say, can we have our picture taken? Why? Sure. Boom. 
You're getting me. A former roommate tried out oh, a tuba player in Canada. He came to W.C. Fields, and he was very good at it. Even dyed his hair orange to, to match right. W.C. Fields. He never made any color movies. And right. I thought, okay, we're not going to do the lookalikes. Also, because there was a sleazy lawyer in L.A. who was charging the closest distant relative of every celebrity that you wanted to impersonate yeah, uh, a fee that. of you know, hundred dollars a month or something and i thought we don't need those i told michael I no. said, we don't need those no do our no. own genetic cops and trash collectors and gossip columnists and all these people all right, the other yeah. thing that i came to very quickly on street mr boulevard was when i was at epcot we had three guys three actors doing dream finder and a kid would meet dream finder tuesday be back on Saturday and say, hi, remember me? Well, of course, Dreamfinder didn't remember him because he's now mm-hmm. talking to Steve Taylor and the Dreamfinder he met on Tuesday was Ron Schneider. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love We've interviewed him. He's a wonderful man. We we had a great time oh, yeah. with him. Yeah, yeah. Ron, Ron was yeah. a great interview. Yeah. He's a good guy. Anyway, he um, and, and so I thought, okay, if I have a gossip columnist or two, they will have their own costume their own character, their own look, and their own name. Yeah. So when you meet and Patty Mar- uh, um, Susie Marshall that I hired, because I had done Poop to Do Review with her for several years, I was six fit Slocum, and, and she was my female partner in that. I said, I've got something I want you to do. You'd be great at this. But she was a mom, so I knew she could handle kids. She's very quick-witted. And there's a lot of, uh, some of the best videos of Street Mister are, are of Susie. And so that if you met Susie and were interviewed by her for her gossip magazine, and then on another day you met our other gossip columnist, you knew you were meeting somebody different, different costume, different look, different atmosphere, so on. So we did that with everybody, with our our police. They all had their own personality and so on. Anyway, one day, so we were rehearsing on the streets in the morning. And then in the afternoons in a in a just a rehearsal hall behind the and the scenes at MGM because they were doing soft opening with guests. And we weren't doing any interaction with guests right away. <clears throat> and what we rehearsed was what is the relationship that you as the trash collector to the stars have to the starlet just off the bus with her little suitcase? And what's your relationship to that cop, that cop, that cop, and that cop? So everybody knew each other. So those were what our rehearsals were, yeah. improvising as we go along. Well, one day I get a note from Marty Scalar. He said, uh, he said, Marty, he says, I really like McNair and his, his idea was great. But he says, I've been to the park several times. I never see his characters. They're not out there enough. Maybe we should cancel it. Wow. So I called Marty right away. I said, Marty, they've never been in the park at the same time. Michael's there in the afternoon, we're there in the morning. I said, the other thing is, everybody who's got an attraction has had an every six months or more update with Eisner and different bigwigs. Mm-hmm. I did one presentation of Streetmosphere with my cartoons of all the characters, acted them out, and it was mm-hmm. while I was still a consultant. And Michael said, Grand Slam. Well, when he really liked something, he said, Home Run. My friend Eric Jacobson, who was the major show producer on Great Moments of the Movies, or uh, Great Movie Lot, I guess we ended up calling it, said, Grand Slam, nobody gets the Grand Slam, and he doesn't even work here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the back of the room. Yeah. 
but everybody agreed it was wonderful. And I said, Marty, I've had one presentation to introduce Streetmas here, and I haven't had any updates to show them my characters. I said, before you cancel this, I've got 30 actors here that we've flown in from all over the country. Yeah. We went to 10 cities, auditioned 2,000 people. And also on that tour was Tom Sherman, who created Comedy Warehouse, and Roger Cox, who, who um, directed Adventures Club. Wow. And because I had shown Roger Cox Sack Theater at that time, and he just loved it. I said, the reason I'm showing you this is because Adventures Club is indoor street theater. Nice. So he and I talked about that late into the night. And so in the evenings, after I was done rehearsing Streetmosphere, I would go over to rehearsals of the Adventures Club before it opened and take them through the principles and process of doing street theater. And one of those main principles is when, when a guest approaches you, you throw an assumption on them. The assumption of Disney MGM Studios, everybody, when they come through that turnstile, I don't care where you think you left your car, you are now in Hollywood, California. You folks yeah. from L.A., uh, you're right here in Hollywood. And it was so, and, and we never said Disney MGM Studios, we never said theme park, we never said Disney. Yeah. And it was so successful that the guys that ran the uh, merchandise had me train all the cast members who worked in all the shops on Hollywood Boulevard to use the same rules and treat it as a real place. Creative Entertainment, in one of their few strokes of clarity, had me train all the bands. And I said, guys, don't stand in the street. This is Hollywood Boulevard. You get run over. Right. Stand in the so, <laughs> I love that. That's the, that's the has, has that, can, I, can I ask a personal question? Has that helped you today? When you, you are a coach, you are somebody now, and I would, you know, if you, if you want to go down this conversation road, I would love that because I have so many questions. If you, but, and your story is amazing. We can keep there. We can keep with your story. I, we, I, I'm just thoroughly entertained. Um, but I, I'm just so, you know, I, I, I think I'm mesmerized by just number one, your speaking ability, but number two, you know, you, you are, you're a coach now and, and you have all this wisdom and, you know, can we talk about some ideas and some, you know, about where, where, how you like to coach and, and what you're doing now, you know, and, and all well, those Bruce, things. Bruce, comes to coaching speakers, I, I believe that public speaking is within the parameters of the performing arts. Yes. Performing arts are meant to engage, to enliven, to entertain, and here and there to educate yeah, and to, to, to inspirit people to move beyond, you know, whatever they're doing now. And, and so when I'm on stage, that's why at the end of all my corporate speaking engagements, I bow. It's an act of humility that actors say, we do this for you. It's the reason why in 1995, when I found out that my middle name, McNair, wow. well, it means son of the servant or son of the steward. And oh. so it is one who serves. And, and so I really see that when I get on stage, whatever else I do, I want you to enjoy yourself. Yes. But anyway, all that to say that when I coach speakers, I coach them no differently than when I'm directing a play. I might stop you and say, let's try that again and let's start it over from here. Mm. And sometimes it's just moving the story around. Sometimes it's, it's about getting to the story more quickly. Most speakers waste the listener's time for at least two to five minutes with things like good morning how is everybody yes. and that's the most 
one of the most important moments in any talk, whether yeah. you're just giving an announcement to a group of people or doing a, an important lecture, is the first words out of your mouth. And those words, I say, are a story, compelling question, or yes. an outrageous statement. Not a joke. So I, now, if it's a joke, it damn well better be a part of the subject matter of, of the moment. If you're giving an announcement, yes, you need to give it in a way that whatever you're announcing, everybody in that room wants to be a part of what you're suggesting. Yes. There's, there's a single word that I use for speakers, for authors, for anybody trying to communicate, and that is the word objective. Yes. That's good. That's good. Knowing the objective of your presentation, of your book, and each chapter of a book has its own objective. Knowing your objective answers the question, why am I telling you this? Yeah. And what do why? I want you to do, to change, to think, to consider as a result yes. of me telling you this? Every once in a while, a college will invite me to be on campus for six weeks to direct a play in the theater department, to teach in various classes. So yeah. one year at at um, Huntington College, Huntington, Indiana. Uh, professor in the communications department says, you know, we have a youth ministry major here. And we do, uh, in that youth ministry major, we teach from Ken Davis's book, Secrets of Dynamic Communication. I understand you've taught for Ken at his dynamic communication workshop. I said, yes, I spent 12 years there. And I'm a certified communication professional under Ken, so I can teach his course if someone wants that, so on, so on, so on. And it's from that course that we get the word objective. I, he said, well, I'd like to speak class. When do you meet? He said, Tuesdays and Thursdays right after chapel. I said, next Thursday I'm speaking in chapel. Why don't I speak right after chapel? So I did my talk, went in the class, and I said, okay, you read this book. I believe what this book teaches. How do you do? And the kid says, well, it was kind of weird. It felt like you left a part out. I said, where? He said, at the beginning. I said, what did I leave out? But I'm not sure. It's just like you got up and all of a sudden you're telling this story. And I said, yeah, what was the story? And they walked me through the opening story, almost word for word. And I said, and then as we went on, what was the point of, of, the, of the talk? Well, you talked about these four things is what they said, but they're the four habits of actively creative people. And it's the talk I created when I was teaching my brainstorming to Disney executives. And they said, we're not creative. Head of Disney Studios said, I'm not creative. And I said, well, first of all, you're a liar. You're either a liar or an idiot, but you can be both. You seem like a smart guy. I said, they don't make people chairman of Walt Disney Studios who are, you know, this is the number three guy in the organization. And he said, well, I can't even draw six figures. I said, sure you can, because somewhere <laughs> as a kid got on a bus and played hangman, you had to draw six figures. He goes, oh, yeah. But I said, the good news is no one is hiring six figure drawers. So you're off the hook. Long story short, over. I said to these guys, so in the course of five minutes, the class, just through a Socratic questioning, retold me my talk. The beginning of that talk, if you go to my, my blog site, Tea with McNair, like the drink, T-E-A with McNair, you'll see the link to TED Talk. I've done three TED Talks, but this is the one that's most popular. Begins with me saying, before anybody else in town knew, he knew. He'd known for a long time, his whole life. Well, if you read my new book, the first line in the book is, before anybody else in town knew, he knew. And he'd known for a long time. I don't begin with, I'm going to talk to you about... 
I said, what do you think the point of my talk today was? They said to tell us all that we have an active creative spirit, and you can use it by practicing these four habits. Well, that's a talk that I created after talking to these top executives at Disney who said they weren't creative. I said, you make the mistake that the world makes, that you hear the word creative, and you think artistic ability or artistic pursuits. And that's like you calling me and saying, McNair, do you want to have dinner? I say, sure, but I don't own a restaurant. Well, maybe we could go to somebody else's restaurant. And I told him about having gone to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design on a full scholarship. They never called me before I got there and said, by the way, you can draw a straight line, can't you? Because that was the other excuse one of these guys made about not being creative. I can't draw a straight line. I said, that's why every Hobby Lobby and art supply store in the world has an entire aisle of triangles, T-squares, and rulers. And they sell them to extremely talented artists because guess what? They can't draw a straight line either. Not a test for anything. But when we got done with this class, they saw that by starting with the story, or it could have been an outrageous statement. I could have said, everybody in this room has a creative spirit. You use it every day, but not on a level of strength and dynamism that shows the world that you are creative or helps you understand you're creative. So McNair, um, I'm a teacher. So I love like a lot of this stuff that you're saying, uh, the the importance of public speaking and and things like that. And teaching, yeah. Right. And I want to go back a little bit because you had mentioned this idea of of the objective, right? Of having whatever you're saying, whatever you're doing, you have to have first your end in sight. Like what did you want them to learn or to come away with in teaching? We call it understanding by design or UBD where you have your objective, like what you want your student to learn. And then you build backwards. How do you build the lesson? What questions do you ask? What activities do you do to get them to that point? Right. The most important thing is your objective. And you know, we're a Disney podcast, and I, I know that you were, you know, like the lead Imagineer on the Tower of Terror. So I would love to know how that objective, that mindset, that, you know, what you wanted to achieve, how does that play uh, into being an Imagineer? How did it affect you when you were designing Tower of Terror specifically or anything else that you may have worked on? Like, what what was that process like? I will tell you all of that. Let me make a quick comment about UBD, which I'm familiar with in passing. Um, I don't disagree with that philosophy, but I think sometimes it allows us to do less than we we could do. Yeah. Uh, UBD. What I want to do as a communicator is communicate something that inspires or motivates people to make a change, to step up, to add to, to increase, not just yes. to know more information. I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, a a teacher's individual philosophy on education. So you have like those old school, fill the empty vessel type teachers, which is like, like what you're saying, right? Like, I just want you to know this information. So how am I going to teach you the information? But then a lot of newer teachers, I I think I fall into this category as well. Data transmission. That's what I am. I'm a history teacher. So I'm not so much concerned with my students knowing a specific date or a time. That's like the story we can use. That's something that I will use to teach them that skill. And one of those skills, like you're mentioning, is to question, right? I want my kids to debate with me and to argue with me and to, uh, you, you, 
use a, a quote in your in one of your TED talks where you talk about curiosity is like creativity's best friend. Oh. And that's what I feel like a lot of well, I hope is something that I do in my classroom when I use that, my goal is for them to be curious. I want them to want to learn more, to go look into it further, to do stuff on their own. And, you know, if I'm interpreting what you mean by curiosity is creativity's best friend correctly, but I feel like that's something that teachers should do. Yeah, and it's just a fancy way of saying the best tool in creativity is a question. Right, right. One One of the things that Walt was famous for You'd make a presentation to him for a new film. There might even be just be a, a Mickey Mouse short or, or a new attraction at, at Disneyland. Right. And you knew that when you're done with your presentation, he was going to say, and then what happens? Right. In other words, is that the whole thing? And that's why in the original great moments with Mr. Lincoln for the New York World's Fair 1964, he's standing on a stage with a portico and behind him a three-dimensional sculpture of the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C. And Herbie Ryman, the famous illustrator who did, did so many paintings that were concept art for different parks. And, and so Herbie, knowing this about Walt, he said, now, you know, they told him the whole thing, what would happen, what Walt, what, what Lincoln would say, and Walt, and before Walt could say, then what happens, Herbie stepped and says, and then, just when you think it's all over, the music swells of Battle of the Republic, and Herbie reached behind this long vertical painting, horizontal painting, illustrating the scene they were going to build. And he flipped over some acetate, some clear plastic, on which he had painted a new sky that dropped in behind the Capitol and in between the columns of clouds. And then another one as the lights changed and, and these strands of cloud, of horizontal clouds, and then the sunset. And the sky became the American flag. Wow. And Walt said, that's it. And those that were there at the wow. time, you knew it was one of the few, few times that, that he felt like Imagineers got the whole thing on the first try. Right. And so you want to say to people, you know, what's it going to be? A few, uh, I think it was two summers ago, three summers ago at D23. I was in there. I watched the YouTube video. And, and my friend and former colleague, Tony Baxter, uh, one of the great, uh, Imagineers of all time, a girl said, why is it, Tony, that when I ride on Pirates of the Caribbean, for the 19th time, I see things that I've never noticed before. And Tony said, he said, I don't design attractions and experiences and places for people to enjoy and get the most out of the first time through, but the 10th time through, the 19th time through, the 21st time through layers and layers and layers of design and story and and other things that's why and i tell people when you go next time you go to one of the five or six magic kingdoms that disney has around the world stop pick out a storefront not the main one and count the number of different colors of paint on that storefront in san francisco they say or in real estate they say you know you paint a house and then you paint the trim and if you really want to make it pop you do a third color inside the trim and the house really pops well in pasadena when i lived there i lived in bungalow heaven historically and you add i had five different colors on my house and i would get notes in my mailbox every week what colors are these how did you decide how did you it's just a matter of doing the work and right. and yeah. Disneyland, doing the work Main Street, ooh there are, that's even press there field are buildings that, 
There are buildings that have over 20 different colors of paint on one facade. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so it's a matter of, it's the detail. When people say, well, you know, you guys, Imagineers, you think you're perfect and you, you're the only ones that can design good theme parks. And I said, no, we don't. But yeah. we certainly know that we're able to do it in a way where when we come up with an idea and a level of detail for that idea and then come up with the budget to do it, that's what sets it apart. Everybody's got good ideas. So, uh, a lady said to me one time, well, what about, what about Universal's Island of Adventure? That's a great part. I said, it is. And let me tell you the name of the five former Imagineers that designed that part. <laughs> right. So, McNair, I would... Including me. Right. I would, I would love to... You know, all the stories you have, uh, we're going to have to have you back because, we, you know, otherwise we could talk for another three hours. But I would love to hear, you know, as an iconic of an attraction that Tower of Terror is. And the, you know, I'll say the debate over the, the retheming of it, right? Out in California, how they have rethemed Tower of Terror to the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, if you want to talk on that, you can talk on that. But as the lead Imagineer on Tower of Terror, I would love to hear some of those stories, those details that you're talking about that you as an Imagineer and Imagineers in general kind of layer into these attractions and these stories that you're telling. Uh, I would love to hear about that. Every theme park or major attraction has a meeting called One Year Out. Okay. And it's on the day one year before that attraction or that park is scheduled to open. At the One Year Out meeting for Disney MGM Studios, we knew the park was going to be quite small. And, 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 and I've said the next person that I hear say, well, you know, when that park opened, there are only two rides. The next person I hear say that, I'm going to hit them with the largest metal object <laughs> nearby. <laughs> Marty Scalar, my boss and mentor, head of Imagineering for years, worked there 54 years, was a journalism major. He was a wordsmith. Mm -hmm. And one of the great coup d'etats for anybody at Imagineering, if you were a writer, was to be invited by Marty to edit, to chime in on, or give some kind of input to any talk. He was constantly giving talks to business groups. Called me into his office one day and said, your parents were educators, yes. And he said, you were a teacher for a time. I said, yes. He says, well, I'm speaking at the National Teachers Association National Convention that's going to be here in L.A., speaking at the banquet, and I'd like you to write the talk for me. I said, well, give me your, give me your draft, and I'll take a look at it. He said, no, I want you to write it. Mm -hmm. You know, very gratifying. Right. Anyway, with all of that, Marty said one day to Walt, listening to the way Walt talked and what Disneyland was going to be and how unusual it was going to be, and some of the most intriguing things at, at Disneyland were not necessarily going to, is the castle a ride? No. Right. Is it a major part of the experience? Yes. And it's amazing how people have gone to Disneyland over and over and over and never done the Sleeping Beauty walkthrough tour in that castle. People say, what are you talking about? I said, next time you're there, walk through the castle front gate. Look to your left, there'll be a little awning, Sleeping Beauty boat next to the drinking fountain. Mm -hmm. So Marty yeah. suggested to Walt, and it's a brilliancy on his part, that we don't have any rides at Disney parks. We have attractions. Right. Oh, For yeah. opening day of Disney MGM Studios, we had the back, lake, the back lot tour, which was in a tram, a ride, yes, but half of it was walking. Right. And the great movie ride, formerly great moments of the movies. Uh, but Frank Wells apparently couldn't remember that many words, so he said we should shorten it. Which led, <laughs> he said, just call it the movie ride. 
The compromise was great movie ride, and I sat down and renamed every attraction in in Epcot and the Magic Kingdom to be the shortest possible thing. Pinocchio became Wooden Boy. Snow White became Pretty Pretty Girl and Her Seven Friends, and so on. (laughs) Snow-covered mountain, so on. You can guess. And he said, okay, 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 leave me alone. But was the um, superstar video where 21 guests are playing roles in TV shows like Bonanza and Tonight Show, is that a ride? Not technically, but it is a major attraction, and it was their opening day. Mm-hmm. How about the Monster Sound Show, where they had people do sound effects for a movie they're watching? A ride? Not a bit, but it was an attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is uh, Even though it wasn't ready opening day and was never designed to be, but when it was a few weeks later, was the Indiana Jones epic spe- stunt spectacular ride? No, yeah. but it was an attraction. Great opening hat. day, Disney and Studios had eight attractions. And... Here's the deal. The average attraction at Disneyland was about, well, less than two minutes long. The average. Without without pirates, it bumped, it would drop it even below that. <laughs> the average yeah. attraction at Disney Anthem Studios was almost 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Because they were longer experiences. Right. And you could, people say, well, you know, it wasn't worth the money because you could do the whole thing in one day. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. Did you really want to go home not having been able to see everything? <laughs> so it, some of it's language, some of it's perception, and we can help people with the language by pointing those kinds of things out to them. But besides, there weren't any rides at Disney MGM Studios opening day. Is the pet peeve that people refer to it as MGM Studios. I said, really? You were unable to read the 18-inch high letters on the main yeah. gate that said Disney MGM <laughs> Studios? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Also calling the Magic Kingdom magic. Right. There you go. Well, so, you know what I meant. I said, oh, I said, I know what you meant because I'm smart. <laughs> you know, come on. You are smart. But 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 they improved the name of that, that park by giving it a worse name. Disney Hollywood Studios. Ooh, <laughs> and Kingdom. Anyway, That's let me tell you about Tower Care. The um Disney management, I understand Walt did this as well, but especially Mr. Eisner, uh, Michael was always wooing people to come make a movie or move their production company to the Disney lot. And the way they would do it is that maybe we can do an attraction based on one of your movies. So one of those production companies was the Zucker Brothers who had done the movie Airplane. Do you like Gladiator movies, son? <laughs> and so... <laughs> You're doing so good voices. Over to I love it. <laughs> to Jeffrey Katzenberg's office one day to meet with them. And I was wearing a t-shirt from, uh, from um, Dead Poets Society, it said Carpe Diem. Jeffrey said, hey, great shirt. I said, I get a, comp- a lot of compliments on it. And one of the Zuckers says, what does it mean? I said, Carpe Diem, the fish are biting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we designed this attraction. Everybody loved it. It was absolutely nuts. And it was standing in line the queue area was walking through traffic out in front of the airport. There was a check-in gate and so on and so on and so on. And it was, a, it was a, an attraction about special effects, but it was all poor man's special effects. So when you got in the plane and there was rain, you'd look out the window and you'd see a guy with a hose. And you'd see <laughs> other guys with big, big sticks making the plane rock back, rock, rock back and forth and so on and so on. 
Well, everybody loved it, but when they crossed it out, it was $175 million. And this was long before they'd ever spent any kind of, that kind of money on an attraction. But oh. they remembered that. Eisner remembered that. Fast forward, we're building Disney MGM Studios, and a year out, we realized the place is too small. We did a quick brainstorming, and Bob White said, we'll work on that, Michael, about what's the expansion. What's the next? We need to start now before the park opens to design the expansion. As we looked at the white model of the park, we said there's no place we can plop down a section of land, you know, like they plop down um, um, galaxies left and right edge in the uh, Magic Kingdom and the, and the Disney Hollywood Studios. That's a, um, that's a Matt. That's a Matt question right there. He's chomping at the bit. I love right I love galaxies. So, I'm a Star Wars so fan. Somebody said, "Well, we could we could we could go off laterally from Hollywood Boulevard." and do a new street. So Sunset Boulevard was born. Well, when you add a new land, a new section to a Disney park, you have to have an iconic attraction that kind of sets that off. So the frontier land, you've got Big Thunder Mountain. Tomorrowland, you've got Space Mountain, so on. They tend to be mountains. So Michael called Marty Sklar and said, have McNair put his airplane troop together to work on the weenie which was the nickname Walt gave for the iconic attraction, the Weenie for Sunset Boulevard. Do you guys know where Weenie comes from? No, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I want to hear that one if it's something that Walt was using. Yes, Walt would come home every day, whatever time he came home, and his little dog would meet him at the back door. And so Walt would go to the refrigerator and get a hot dog, hold it to <laughs> his side and shake it, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. And the dog would follow him into the bedroom while he put on his work clothes. Then he'd keep shaking it, go outside to work on his backyard railroad. And at some point, the dog would get a bite. But it was a way of keeping the dog's attention. Just a little shaking weenie. So he said, we, one day he said, we need a weenie here to get to people's attention to draw into this area. So, McNair, a, a real quick side question. Do you know what the first weenie was? Like, is that a known thing amongst the Imagineers? I've never heard anybody say what the first wing, what okay. what the first use of me was. Okay. It might have been the Matterhorn, end of the Matterhorn in '59. All right. You know the Matterhorn. That's gonna be a circus, right. a daily operating tent circus that originally was over to the left where where the uh, show building for Pirates is uh, outside the park, the Holiday Land area. Mm. Anyway, so I, uh, Marty called me and said, "Get get your 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 Came together, what do you call them? I said, the knuckleheads. And I just found in one of my old sketchbooks the page of the meeting, the first meeting, with a list of who was there. And I remember that it was at least Steve and Tim Kirk, the Kirk brothers. And they're the ones that went on to do, um, to take the group that I had led to create a water based thematic park for Long Beach next to the Spruce Goose and the, and the Queen Mary. And Take the, the bones of that and plop it down into Tokyo and do Disney Seas. Anyway, <laughs> so I assembled this group, and in the process of putting the team together, I said, start thinking for what we might put at the end of Sunset Boulevard. And we hadn't finalized all the things that were going to be on Sunset Boulevard, but we had designed Rock and Roller Coaster to be somewhere in that park, not sure where. The original spot was over by um, Indiana Jones in the in, on the location that is now where Star Tours is, but they moved it because the the exterior of Rock and Roller Coaster is uh, Big Fat Zero. 
It's, okay. a, it's an interior thing. And so they just, they spent a lot of time coming up with ideas to, to, to do some kind of a, a shell facade for Rock and Roller Coaster in the same way that um, Space Mountain has a, has a shell. And now you've got the new Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy ride at Epcot, which, mm-hmm. like Rock and Roller Coaster, well, I, I, I started to notify the team, hey, we're going to have a meeting. Uh, we haven't set the me- first meeting date yet because Michael wants to come over. He's got somebody he wants to bring with him. And as I say, we thought, well, it's probably going to be some young, yeah. up-and-coming film director that Michael likes and is clever and so on. So it was great. So we're sitting in Marty's conference room, which is about the size of my home office here. Um, and we're sitting there waiting. And it's about six of us plus Marty. And Michael Eisner walks in with his friend, Mel Brooks. Brooks, oh my God. That's awesome. And, and, and as I said to the team later, and they all agreed, every day from now on, the rest of our lives will only ever be at best, the second best day of our life. <laughs> so true. We shared oxygen with Mel Brooks for three hours. Well, you, 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 I mean, we wouldn't have guessed in a million years that he was bringing Mel Brooks over. Because they brought other people. I mean, they brought James Cameron over, at, you know, to work on ideas for attractions and so on and so on. You know, those kind of people. And you know, Pee Wee Herman do do, do voiceovers. So there awesome. were celebrities Sorry. of different breeds walking through. So he said, "What are we doing?" And and so I described Sunset Boulevard, and I said, "We need an attraction at the end." I told him about weenies, and I said, "So we're going to do the Mel Brooks something 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 something." So how many something? I said, well, right now, three, we might get it up to four. And uh, he said, what's it going to be? I said, well, the thing you need to understand about Disney MGM Studios is we don't do rides where we retell a, the story of the, of the plot of a movie in the ride vernacular. So I said, as much as we might like to do farting cowboys of the Caribbean, we probably won't do that. <laughs> for blazing. And as much as it might be fun to build Dr. Frankenstein's castle and so on we want to go beyond that we don't want to just give people that's what universal did they did a disneyland of the movies and that's fine that's great you know some some of what they did are actually in, in, entertaining because they were designed by former disney imagineers anyway so i said my my guess is just off the cuff here mel we ought to re-screen all of your movies uh and yeah. that's an, including one that's not video because I'd like to have it because I love the movie. Uh, you know, his company was Brooks Film, which was a movie that his wife and Bancroft starred in that was the, the movie form of the Broadway play of the book, uh, 84 Sharing Cross Road, about a bookstore in New York City uh, or in, in London. Anyway, so I said, now we need <laughs> to know what's called. We introduced the, the team and everybody had name tags on and it came to me and he starts pounding on my chest. And he said, what about you? What, do you? what about you? What do we call you? He said, you're going to have to call me Mr. Wilson. And for the next several months that we worked together, he'd come over one or two days a week and hang out for a couple hours. He would call me Mr. Wilson. And when we said, now, what do we call you? He said, you can call me. And his arms outstretched and his hands wide. He said, you can call me Mel. And I said, guys, <laughs> in the whole room without Urson went, Mel. So anytime anybody said his name, whether he was in the room or not, they said, I have a question for Mel. And he loved that dude, just giggled. And he looked, he'd look at Eisner and he said, these guys, these guys are good. And then he'd look at Mike and he said, these guys. And then another time he said, you're not, you're not paying him enough. I said, say that again louder, Mr. Brooks. 
So we, we rescreened without him in the room, and he sent us. I think the only thing that wasn't commercially available was baseballs, which he sent us. My friend Jim J. Bullock, if you remember the, the, the TV show Alf. I love Alf. So you remember Jim J. Bullock. He was the big guy that was the family friend. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's an actor acquaintance of mine. He said that Spaceballs was the worst, bar none, experience of his TV and movie-making career. It began principal photography before the first act of the script was complete. Really? For Spaceball. Well, what happened was I knew that somebody was going to do a send-up, a parody of, of um, Star Wars while he was still at Paramount. So he said, right. we should do it. So he called Mel and said, look, we need to have you dash off a quick parody of Star Wars before some other studio does it. I'll give you $10 million to make it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So they made Spaceballs. While we were watching Spaceballs one day at lunch, Steve Kirk, who the younger of the two Kirk brothers, Steve was the person, the creative person in charge of Disney Seas Tokyo, in the middle of eating a sandwich, turned to me and said, I now know the worst movie I've ever seen. Really? And we agreed. It had it had barely enough to get released. If it hadn't been made by Mel Brooks, it never would have left the building. It it you know I, I'm going to make you even more mad. I would put Spaceballs in the same category as Princess Bride. Oh, but I love Princess Bride. <laughs> That's okay. Everybody everybody oh. has the right to their own opinions. I Princess know. Bride and Spaceballs. Princess Bride and Spaceballs are a little collection of yeah. things that should have been individual sketch, sketches or skits on Saturday Night Live. They're not a complete <laughs> story. And, and I, just, I just don't like people to treat Princess Bride as though it's some um, epic Adventures of Robin Hood film because it's not. No. So um, like Men in Tights, would you throw Men in Tights in the same realm as Princess Bride? Because I would. I would, except that it's more cohesive a story. Princess Bride, it's like you're watching a movie with with a remote control in your hand. Click to the next scene. Click to some mm -hmm. other place. Click to, why are we here now? What's happening over there? Right. Mm -hmm. And Men in Tights, you know, it, it, it tried to do less right. and was therefore a little more successful than Princess Bride. There are great moments in Princess Bride. There are great bits in Princess Bride. But overall... It didn't work for me. Now I'm a playwright. I'm a director. I work for the whole right. story. That's all. Right. Let me do. Let me let's finish Tower of Terror because we could do this kind of side wangling forever. So we're sitting there with Mel, and I said we're not going to do probably a, a a ride that's just the story of one of your movies. But we need something at the far end. We need this and this and this. And we're playing with all kinds of ideas. Meanwhile, at the same time, I'm on a team at Disney, Concept and Design, which is the first team that starts dreaming, to, to build the most expensive, high-end, exclusive resort on the Walt Disney World property. Because we have a level of guests that if you give them the vice presidential suite at the Grand Floridian, and all of a sudden the presidential suite opens, they want it. Not to show off, just that's their lifestyle. So we said, what if we built a hotel for that lifestyle? Every accommodation would be a suite. Everyone would have a 24-hour valet service available. 
So if you wanted fettuccine Alfredo with grilled chicken at four in the morning, it'll be up in 30 minutes, sir. Uh, if you want your right shoe shined on Wednesday morning and your left shoe shined on Thursday night, you could get that. In other words, this would be the ultimate guest uh, accommodation at Disney World. Two, 200 rooms. So a real working hotel. Yes, but very expensive. Right. Um, I think had we built it, I think it would still be running today and they would have added rooms. And I said the working title for the and I, I had put together a team called Deco L.A., where I took the team of architects, designers, and writers, there's about a dozen of us, on a tour of the great Art Deco structures in L.A. to get a feel for what this hotel could be. And then we did a separate trip to the, to the place that really was the, 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 the more specific inspiration for that project. And that's Mission Inn in Riverside. And you need to write that down and look it up online. It's the Hearst Castle of hotels. It's just an amazing, amazing place. Still fully functional, operating. And I think they call the architecture California Mission Renaissance or something like that. It's just a gorgeous, amazing, weird place. So I said to the team one day, I said, hey, how about this? We've already decided we're going to use Young Frankenstein as our muse, as our inspiration, as our underlying sort of melody, theme song, to whatever the Mel Brooks thing is. Yeah. What if that real hotel that's going to exist has at one end the old original tower part of that Hollywood Tower Hotel or whatever it would be called. And Mel said, what, would, what is, it, is it? I said, no, it's deserted. He said, haunted. I said, haunted, deserted. It's the same words. And he looks at the guys in the room and goes, haunted, deserted. Sounds different, doesn't it, guys? And I said, but you know what I mean? I said, you walk into the lobby and there's, there's a game of bridge half done, covered in dust. Well, eventually we did Mahjong, which is much better. There's a, there's a luggage sitting by the front desk with a coat draped over it, covered in dust. It's all there, and then all of a sudden, the people are gone. Oh. So we said, well, what goes on there? I said, well, we'll brainstorm it next time. I said, Mel, you've got to be here. And so I brought in, I've always had one of those little ring bell for service things on it sits on a desk. So I brought that in, and we sat at a round table, and I said, we're going to go around one sentence each, and we're going to tell the narrative, the story, the mythology of this hotel, the original our hotel and we said you go in and we described all the things that were in there you get to the elevator it's broken the doors are kind of cracked open the needle is stuck on seven or something and so somebody says well, what do we do well we go down into the steam room then Mel says what's in the steam room and the whole team as if we'd heard rehearsed it said steam and Mel actually jumped right because he thought we'd rehearsed it we hadn't and we get to the steam room and we find the service elevator said, what's the difference? And I said, well, this regular elevator has hard doors. So you close it and you can't see out. Service elevator has a gate. So as you go by each floor, you can see different things. Ah, great. And, and I said, you go by one floor and you see this. And then somebody else says, and then you see this. And then you see this. And we had to determine how high it was. But at one point, somebody says, you get to the top. And the elevator sort of rumbles and shakes. The gate opens. And the elevator slides out of the shaft and starts rolling down the hall. And we all screamed. And he just said it in the spur of the moment. 
And I've asked the Kirk brothers, who said that? And they said, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And I said, it wasn't me. I'm happy to take credit for it if it was my idea for the <laughs> elevator to come out of chat. So we can't remember who it was. And, and so it's moving down the hall. And Mel said, looks at me and says, can we do that? And I said, well, I know a guy. He said, you know a guy. He looks at this group. He says, he knows a guy. I said, they know him. Jack, head engineer on, on the first Space Mountain. If anybody could take an elevator out of the box and move it down the hall, Jack could figure it out. Sorry. So literally the next day, I found four engineers at lunch, and I went and I took my tray and insinuated into their table, a table that only seats four people, and now I'm sitting there with them. Grabbed a fistful of napkins. One of my Pentel sign pen, the artist friend, the felt pen that all Imagineers use to, to write with, it's 11 different colors. And I described to them, Mel Brooks meeting with us, how that came to be, what we were designing, the weaning for the end of Sunset Boulevard, so on, so on, so on. And I said, you know that we're doing the uh, an old California-style hotel. I'm telling the guys this story. Yeah. And I'm using a salt shake on the table. And Let's if you, do it. If, you were, uh, if we were on video, and I don't know why we're not, but if we were, I'm now holding the salt shaker that sits on my desk all the time for when I do podcasts that are on video. Yeah. And inside of my excedrins, they're white, so it looks like salt. <laughs> and I'm moving it around the table, I'm moving around the table. And I said, so it goes down the hall. And one of the guys said, how are you going to get them? In fact, it was Jack, the head guy, that I said to Mel, I know a guy. How are you going to get people back down to the earth, to the ground level? I said, well, first of all, I didn't know I could get them out of the elevator. Right. So you're asking me a question I didn't need the answer to until this very moment. But I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to do a roadrunner. And one of the guys said, perfect, a delayed drop. So Roadrunner and Coyote are working their way through the great wilderness, and Roadrunner comes to a cliff, and he takes off because he's a bird. Coyote goes off the cliff, and he's a coyote, and he does the delayed drop, which means he's in midair for a few seconds, looks down, no more cliff under him, and he falls. I said, let's do the same thing with this. So I took the salt shaker, moved it off the edge of the table, held it there for a minute, and then dropped it to the carpeting in the Big D Cafe at Imaginary. And they all said, we love it. How tall is this building going to be? And I said, it's not very tall. It's all suites. I said, you know, the rough drawings that one of the concept architects did, it's like six stories, you know, because every suite is two stories tall. And I said, it's only going to be 100 or 200 rooms. And they said, that's not tall enough. And I said, no, it's not. It's not scary. And I said, maybe 10 stories. Can we do that? He said, and he hit me again in the, in the Waltz poked me in the wow. shoulder spot <laughs> and said, Come on, theme park boy, think. Plus two, it's got to be at least 12. And I said, okay, Mel Brooks Hollywood Horror Hotel, I said 13 stories. How appropriate for our 13 stories. And what an ominous number. 13. It's like, uh, exactly. So then, I, so then the guy said, yeah, we can do 13 there. You know, at Disney World, the tallest building you can build is 200 feet. And you can build it taller than that, but then you have to put this 10 or 20-foot pole with a beacon light and a radar beacon down airplanes. So they said, tell you what we'll do is we'll bank it as tall as we can. We'll paint it to look like 13 stories. So here's what you do, guys. Matt, I wish you'd have known this before your recent 15-night <laughs> stay, but you'll, you'll do it next time. All right. On the side of the original Tower of Terror in Florida, you'll see that they painted it to look like 13 stories. Right. But it's only 189 feet, which makes it just over an 18-story building. Wow. Oh. Okay. 
because we're it doesn't the magic Matt. we're sharing right. the magic right it doesn't drop if i'm correct it doesn't drop like the full length of the tower correct well it can't it's got to have a box right here's the funny about the drop first time they dropped it there was so much air pressure that all the props at the bottom were completely blown all over the place <laughs> so that's why they're in cages okay and that's why they've got tricks about they drop the other thing is it doesn't drop it is pulled to the ground at three and a half times the speed of gravity wow okay i mean you wouldn't know that i mean falling is falling parts right, is parts. right. you know one of the other things and this is this is one of my least favorite things to do to friends and guests and podcast hosts and one of my favorite things to do is tell you what was designed that wasn't built okay yeah i'm a theater guy right yeah, that's what so, we want to know. What, we want to know that stuff. Oh, and first of all, when we showed the idea to Eisner, he said, I love it. I'll take four of them. <laughs> and I said, four? He said, well, we need one on Sunset Boulevard. We've got to find a place for it in California, probably California Adventure. Uh, and, and somewhere in between there, Tokyo Land Company will see it, and they'll want one. And they'll want one bigger, so start thinking about what makes it bigger. And then we'll also stick one in, in uh, this um, Hollywood Studios. Let's Paris. go. Let's yeah. What? So what? What was this? What was design? What was planned that we never saw? Imagine you go to the Tower of Terror. Have you all been to the one in Florida? Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Now they're all virtually the same when you go into the lobby, but what if, as you're standing in the queue there, there's a man sitting in a big easy chair reading a newspaper? A man, a real man. But you notice he goes, "Oh, he's audio-animatronic." But he's, he's looking back and forth and reading. Next time they go in, all of a sudden he jumps up and says, have you seen this? And it's an actor. <laughs> what if behind the counter is a guy that kind of lifts his head up, looks around, and then ducks back down? And the next time they come through, he jumps up, rings the bell and says, front please. And a, <laughs> and a bellman comes out to take the luggage of the guest that's standing at the counter is there with, having signed in. So you would have three or four AA figures throughout the lobby and different places that might be AA figures, might be real actors. You never know from moment to moment. Okay. When I first went to Imagineering, my, uh, when I first met Marty Scalar, he reached out his hand to shake my hand. He didn't say, nice to meet you. He said, hi, have you ever thought about putting live actors in a brick and mortar attraction? <laughs> That's good. And I said, Marty, only since April of 1967, when my family, including my mother, who was also my drama teacher at school, rode Pirates of the Caribbean for the first time, and we came out and said, that was great. And my mom and I agreed it would be wonderful if a handful of the pirates were real actors. Yeah. Wow. There, are eight, there are eight spots in Pirates of the Caribbean that are completely blank. You don't notice them because they have you looking to the left at the three guys singing Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho. It's the spot where Johnny Depp stood in character, in costume, right. live one day. And well, so that's... what I would do, I'd have three or four spots where there was always a live actor. Now, in spot A, there would be a little script of less than a paragraph. And and on on, on shifts, and, and they'd be in there for like, you know, 30-minute shifts. So if Barry was in spot A, and he would do that, but he would do it in his character. But he would also have other little things that he would add based on his character, which would be different than the character that Jack would do when he was in spot A. Because now yeah. Barry had moved over to spot B. 
okay. and you'd move them around, and their ride would never, ever be the same. Well, I got my chance. We did the 35th anniversary of Imagineering in 1987, and we had 1,200 people for a sit-down dinner in front of the Pirates of the Caribbean before they put the Pirates crossover bridge in to help the queue area there. But on the invitation, it says, when you arrive, it was in December, go immediately to Pirates of the Caribbean and get on the boat for a big surprise. We had over 30 live actors in Pirates, all of them drawn from the ranks of Imagineering. And, <laughs> and so we had all, all through that ride, live characters. Well, here's what happened, was they went through, so, oh, and we re-recorded all the dialogue so that so the, the guy on the, on the pirate ship was yelling, watch out for the leather shark! So we made it all about Disney Universal. The guy being dunked in the in the well had a sign around his neck that said Sid Scheinberg, chairman of Walt Disney, uh, chairman of uh, Universal Studios. And so we redid all the tracks to make it about Universal versus versus Disney. Thirty actors, and there's a place right where the Dead Men Tell No Tales head is. There's a little there's a little lip there, a little probably four by 10 foot space. I don't even know what it's there for. It might be for an emergency. If, if the ride was down, you could stop the boat there and people could get off. So I put on a, a red and white striped sports coat from Carnation Corner and a straw hat. And I had a stack of a book that had just come out called Disneyland Inside Story by Randy Bryce, our VP. So before you ever drop down in the Pirates, I'm standing there and saying, it was all Randy's idea. Walt was just a front man. He was a nobody. Just an old guy that somebody found hanging out at Knox Berry Farm. But the park itself was Randy's and I'm slapping the book telling him. So that's how it began. Anyway, Frank Wells was there. And at dinner, he asked Marty, he said, that was great with the life. Pirates, why wouldn't you do that every day? He said, you're not going to like the answer, but you have to ask McNair. And... Uh, He'll tell you something very revealing about our parks. And after I'd done a presentation for Streetmosphere for Disney, I created a Streetmosphere program for Disneyland with area characters. A guy with 150 old keys hanging from his belt that was the gatekeeper for Fantasyland. Merlin before they had the stone. Um, and and some of these I, I suited up for and actually did in the park and were on videotape. My favorite was <clears throat> an undertaker. And I put on one of the Haunted Mansion green outfits, but I got the oldest one I could find that was dirty and dusty and too small for me. So the pant legs and the sleeves were too short. So I'm, I put a dead flower boutonniere on my lapel. I had a squished hat. I had a tape measure like a tailor would use. And I had a shovel over my shoulder. Well, the queue area for Haunted Mansion in, in LA, there's a raised brick wall with planters. It's about two and a half feet tall. So I stood up there. So I'm more than head and shoulders above the whole audience. So a whole line. So everybody could see me. And I had said years ago, if you would put live thematic area characters by the big attractions, you could turn those lines into audiences and the weights would evaporate. Within less than five minutes, they had to bring out another ride operator to tell people, please, folks, please keep the line moving because they stopped to watch me do my thing. Found a guy smoking, I took out my pocket watch, felt his wrist to get his pulse, and I said, you'll be joining us very soon. <laughs> Patted him on the shoulder, looked at his wife and said, what do you think, Bob? A nice mahogany box or a pine? She said, pine, he's not worth mahogany. <laughs> he's just a guest. <laughs> you know, you give him a chance. 
Yeah. And I just worked my way through the line. Eventually, they had to bring out three ride operator guests, uh, ride operator cast members to keep the line moving because they wanted to stop and watch me do my thing as the undertaker. Right. We did it with a baggage handler in Star Wars. Where's everybody going today? Off? Nobody goes to off. I mean, it's terrible. Go to Tatooine. Ah, it's the pleasant spot of the autumnal outer, outer rim. <laughs> and same thing. They had to bring out cast members. Well, Frank Wells said, why wouldn't we put pirates in there? And I said, oh, we would. But nobody who runs this park wants to spend a nickel doing that. Right. They said, why would you spend money on guests? We've already got their money at the front gate. He said, what would it cost? I said, a dime per guest. He said, be more specific. I said, we have 13 million people who come to Disneyland every year. For $1.3 million, I could have live thematic characters buy the largest rides in the park every day. And we would do it so that they'd do their first four shifts. We know what are the busiest rides in the morning. They'd be there, take a lunch break, and they'd come back in the afternoon as another character. And he right. said, wouldn't the guests recognize them? I said, I do hoop to do review as six bits. Right. And very often, I'll do six bits welcome on a Monday night. Tuesday morning or afternoon, I'm in the United Kingdom at Epcot being McNair, an Irish tree theater character. And people say, didn't we see you last night at the, at the hoop to do And I said, oh, kind of a pudgy fellow with buck teeth? It's my brother. I'm not exact <laughs> identical place. My IQ is higher. Guests love that they catch me at that. Yeah. Or the other way around. Hey, six bits, were you in the United Kingdom yesterday? Or I said they would love to see a guy playing the Undertaker. And later that day, he's the guy panning for gold at Big Thunder Mountain. But right. in his panning for gold, he's got a pan full of coal. And they would just be all over the park, seeing to what's going on. Well, because of that little philosophy of turning into guests, the guys that built and designed or designed and built uh, Magic Kingdom in, in Europe for what was Euro Disneyland, now Disneyland Paris. Tony and his team came and he had a, a lead designer for each of the lands. And they each sat with me individually for a, a half a day. And we designed environmental pieces in their land that could be stages that when nobody was on them, they just fit. So if you go to Paris Disneyland, there's a, there's a place in, in the western area that's just a stack of crates but it's big enough to put a four or five piece bluegrass group on okay. when they're not there it's just a stack of crates but underneath it is a sound system there's a place where you open the door and you can plug in your microphones there's also a place a few feet away from that there's a pile of rocks and a broken down buckboard and in the middle of all those is a flat area that is a stage it's only about two and a half three feet high but when there's nobody on it, it's just a place that kids yes. get up and play on. So we, we designed spaces for that all over the park. Because we said, you know, if we're trying to entertain people. Why don't we actually entertain people? Rather than build building stages that are these cardboard boxes in front of castles, and so we have to close the castle. So one day they said, how do we put a, a stage in front of the castle and then not put so that you don't have to close the castle to people going in. They said, well, they can go on the side. And I said, well, are you worried about closing the castle? What are you trying to do? Not close the castle or, or do a show with the castle behind you? And they said, well, kind of both. I said, define behind. Right. When you take a picture, very often the photographers say, stand three quarters sideways and then turn your head to look at me. Have you been to Paris Disneyland, guys? No, unfortunately, I haven't made it over there yet. Look on a map, get an aerial Google map, 
the castle you can go into anytime you want to. Off to one side, the right side as you're looking at the castle, okay. subterranean is a 2,000-seat amphitheater with a stage that you can do shows on. And as you're watching the show, behind it is this big, beautiful castle. But it's not in the way of anything. So ends the lesson. I feel like Disney has done a very good job with being able to, like, kind of incorporate multiple things, multiple aspects into an area that make it multi-purpose almost. Uh, I'm interested to see, you know, the, the things you're telling me, some of these things I've never heard of before that just goes to show how well they are built into this themed land and, and everything. But something that I, I thought was interesting that keeps popping into my head is, you know, going back to uh, the Tower of Terror and your original idea of it being a, a working hotel with an attraction. And then now you're talking about how you wanted to have these live actors that were part of that theme built in there and how that never really came to fruition. I remember hearing stories. There was, there was like plans of having like a hearse pick people up and bring you to the hotel. Is that correct? I don't, I don't know if I've ever made it to the actual planning stages, but it was certainly on the idea boards. Okay. So the it thing was, that I find kind of interesting, on, it's, on, well, it wouldn't have been for everybody. Cause not, you know, riding in a hearse is not everybody's um, cup of right. formaldehyde. Right. So, uh, one of the one of one of the things that I, I I I keep thinking of is this connection to what these original ideas were for the Tower of Terror and the the recent new slash closing soon the Star Cruiser and how it was this highly themed you know maybe a little bit more expensive hotel experience that was part uh, part hotel part attraction they had these live actors and characters that were in there and it seems like they they maybe attempted to do that was there something that that you can think of that was maybe different because i know you were mentioning how you think that if the tower of terror was ever made into that hotel originally it would probably still be operating today but then we see something like star cruiser that made it about a year and it's something that i personally wanted to do like i wanted to go i was waiting for my son to be older so he could experience some of the other things that you there's age limits for. So I was hoping it was going to be around for a little bit while longer, but I'd love to hear, you know, it seems that they did try that concept. Well, when they were announcing Galaxy's Edge and they said it will be very immersive and there'll be actors and all the cast members will have a backstory and so on and so on. And I said, we'll see. I've been around Disney since Epcot opened in 1982. So mm -hmm. do the math. Right. The number of times that anybody from operations has come to me and said, can you help us with this? Uh, you can count on the fingers of a mutilated hand. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, the, 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 head of, the head of uh, all of Disney World merchandising said, I want you to train, teach, teach the rules of, the, uh, of using Hollywood Boulevard to teach that to all of my cast members and right. all my shops on Hollywood. We did that. Uh, and it wasn't even the top management at, at at Creative Entertainment. And Marty Squire would say they call themselves Creative Entertainment, and they are neither. But uh, you know, uh, you, you guys brought up whatever it's called, the the Lazy Eight Motel Galactica. Um, <laughs> I did a, I did a podcast with my friend who does a big podcast for all the DVC people, Disney 
uh, vacation club members. Mm-hmm. And the, so the whole subject was what to do with that hotel now that they're closing it. And I, I don't I don't know. I'm sure maybe you guys know. I don't know what they spent on that, but it's millions, tens yeah. of millions, if not hundreds. And and they're just going to shut it down. And I started to say when they said they're going to do immersive characters, environmental stuff for Galaxy's Edge, I said, well, we'll see. And I started to ask around, who's doing that? Who have you got that's got that background to do that? Because it's street theater. And all I've ever seen is is uh, the, the guys in the white, you know, it's it's the outer space version of the marching soldiers in Dave's and Toyland. <laughs> uh, Star Troopers. The Star Trooper, yeah. Uh, so you got the Star Troopers walking around, and I saw a couple of times, I saw Ray, and the ones I saw, I saw two different women doing Ray, and she was excellent. Um, but nothing else. And I'd see, you know, one of the biggest ends in Street Theater, I'd see three cast members standing in a little huddle talking to each other, and as the students stared at them for a minute, they turned and said, can we help you find something here in Galaxy's Edge, sir? You know, and I thought of a hundred things I wanted to say that I know I shouldn't, so I didn't. <laughs> and then when they said we're going to do a hotel that's that way, I thought, really, really, that's huge. Yeah, that can be done. But Disney, Disney Entertainment and Operation has done nothing, as in zero, maybe less than zero. Mr. Oppenheimer would say that even suggests they're ready to do something like that. And everybody I know in the world that could help them with that had not been contacted. Unfortunately, we got to stop there. This is this has been a wonderful just night. Yeah, it really has. And before we do go, McNair, could you just tell us a little bit about your upcoming book? So my new book, the sequel to Hatch, which yeah. is called A Trombone Played Badly. And if you've seen my TED Talk, you know what that means. Right. That book will be out. End of summer, beginning of autumn, maybe as late as mid-October. The point of the new book, you know, it's my the book. The book is based on my talk, "Recapturing Your Creative Spirit," which is about me saying you're already doing things that, when created, actively created people do them. We call them creativity. You just don't realize that when you like take a shortcut between home and work, you're being creative. You're solving a problem. You're saying this could be better. Let's find a way to do that bigger and better, so you realize you're being creative. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening in. If you want to hear more information about our guest, McNair Wilson, be sure to check out his website, uh, twithmcnair.com. You can find him on Facebook uh, at either C. McNair Wilson or Hatch by McNair Wilson. He's got tons of uh, videos and TED Talks that you can find online as well. And like he mentioned, be on the lookout for his new book coming later this year. We want to thank all of you for tuning in to another episode of Sharing the Magic. As always, please hit that follow button to stay up to date on the latest episodes and tell your friends to tune in wherever they listen to awesome podcasts like this one. You can also find us at Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Sharing the Magic Pod. Until next time, keep sharing the magic. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hollywood, 1939.
Amid the glitz and the glitter of a bustling young movie town at the height of its golden age, the Hollywood Tower Hotel was a star in its own right, a beacon for the show business elite. Now, something is about to happen that will change all that. on an evening very much like the one we have just witnessed. Tonight's story in the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a maintenance service elevator, still in operation, waiting for you. We invite you, if you dare, to step aboard because in tonight's episode, you are the star. And this elevator travels directly to the Twilight Zone. 